What's up, TRP? I am glad to see you, even if virtually. Just so you know, I am wearing sweatpants right now, but you can't see that. And I will be sad whenever we get together to do things normally again that I won't be able to wear my sweatpants, but uh, that'll be one of the things that I will gladly give up just to be able to see you guys and, and to give out a few hugs. Um, we're gonna do something a little bit different in this sermon because uh, for the first couple weeks in the age of COVID-19 and in the age of our virtual sermons, I've been trying to just stick to business as usual. Uh, when all of this broke, I thought it would be good for us to, to keep that pattern of, of normalcy continuing in the midst of all of the chaos. I thought that maybe you continuing to study the book of John with me and continuing to hear all of our nerdy uh, first century Jewish context in this beautiful book of the Bible might have helped you just to find some of your, your bearings, you know, because nothing says normal quite like putting your head down and just barreling through on an already massively long 50-week sermon series on the book of John. Am I right? I mean, if that's not normal, I don't know what is. Uh, but the more I began to think about this, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that maybe that was just for me. Maybe that was just my own need to stick to the plan and to, to continue on and, and to keep doing what I've been doing uh, to have my own bearings. Uh, the longer this has gone on, though, uh, the more statewide restrictions are put in place, the more COVID cases increase both in Maryland and nationally and globally. And also, as Susie noted uh, in a video last week, the more that the novelty of staying at home is wearing off, it, it's become clear to me that John can wait for a moment because normalcy, if you haven't noticed by now, it's a goner. It is absolutely somewhere else and we are establishing a new normal perhaps, but the things that we were doing a month ago are completely different than the routines that we have established for ourselves today. And for most of us, pretending or, or demanding that everything stay the same would be something like a fool's game at this point because we're so far from that. Like every community, I'm sure that uh, within TRP, we have varied levels of anxiety. We have varied levels of distress. We have varied levels of fear. We also have varied levels of enjoyment, uh, particularly with our married couples with no kids. This might be a beautiful time where you guys get to lounge around and read books and watch movies and uh, just be in relationship with one another. And don't feel bad about that because those are the cards that you've been dealt. And while some people are struggling, that doesn't mean uh, that your capturing of this time and, and making good on it, that's not a bad thing. We have varied levels of financial worries in our community. We have varied levels of stress. Uh, maybe in, a, in an unrelated or very related note, I was just diagnosed with shingles this morning, uh, which I have come to find out can be a stress-induced uh, virus. So welcome. Do not Google image search shingles, okay? That's, that's your PSA, do not. Do not pause this video and, and do that because that will be to your detriment. I've warned you, okay? Uh, we have varied levels of cabin fever within our community. We've got a couple of sevens on the Enneagram scale that are just kind of freaking out and losing it because they need to be 
with people. Now, we also have varied levels of red wine consumption and gin consumption, and in my case, uh, oat milk caramel latte consumptions. I don't know if you caught this, but I decided to treat myself and buy eight pounds of the same caramel syrup that they use at Rise Up just so I could have a bit of that normalcy in my life. So everything's fine, guys. It's, it's going great. I've got shingles. I've got eight pounds of caramel sauce. Our pet's heads are falling off. It's going fine. Okay. I wanted to try to address some of the stuff that we might be feeling today, as varied as, uh, as it may be. And I think I do have a target audience in mind. Uh, particularly, I, I want us to address our penchant in the larger church, maybe the capital C church, maybe the American church, maybe even uh, the local church in, in our area, our penchant to move too quickly beyond grief and beyond sadness, and beyond anger, and beyond the loss of, of time that we have with our loved ones, the loss of the funeral services that we can no longer go to, the, the celebrations that will no longer happen, the birthdays, the graduations, the milestones in our lives that we are being deprived of celebrating in the traditional way because of what's going on in our world, and because of uh, us being in our homes in isolation and in quarantine. We, as a church, we like to move beyond those very real feelings and go to hope. And I would submit that we go to hope too quickly because we usually bury our very real, our very warranted emotions in order to just paste some smile on our face and say, it's okay. God is good. He's good all the time. And everything's working out. And sometimes we don't allow ourselves the license to feel, to process, to emote, to be angry, to be bitter, to be resentful at what is going on. Now, before you guys get excited and think that, okay, great, Josh is gonna address something that, that's real and that's happening right here and now, and maybe he'll decide not to do that in the nerdiest way possible. Before you get too excited, uh, because if you've met me, you, you know that's not going to happen. Uh, in fact, my way into this conversation about our emotions and even the biblical license we have to feel them and to express them to God, my way into that talk is to introduce you guys maybe a bit more fully to my favorite Old Testament theologian, Walter Brueggemann. Now, I thought it'd be fun for you guys just to comment below and, and tell us who your favorite Old Testament theologian was. Just, just drop a comment if you're watching on YouTube or, or Facebook or... What? People, people don't have a favorite Old Testament theologian? Okay. Um, I, uh, just comment your favorite New Testament theologian below. Okay, uh, well, anyway, in, in 1980, uh, Walter Brueggemann wrote what has become a very influential essay on the Psalms entitled Psalms and the Life of Faith. 
In it, he addresses what's going on in the field of Old Testament studies at the time and how people are addressing the book of Psalms. Just for a quick uh, rehash, the book of Psalms is ancient Israel's prayer book, more or less. Some people think that it might have been used similar to a, a hymn book. It was a collection of their praise and lament and thanksgiving. And what scholars were doing uh, in the early to mid 20th century was looking at individual psalms and attempting to identify their genre, their, their type, if you will, um, where these psalms fit in, in categories, whether it be praise or hymn or thanksgiving or lament or royal psalm or creation psalm, all these sorts of things, these categories that scholars were, were creating or identifying to group psalms in their proper place so that we could understand them a bit better. They were also attempting to identify not only the form or the genre of the psalms, but the function of these psalms, how they were used in ancient Israel's worship or how they were used in ancient Israel's individual expressions of spirituality. Now, both of these questions really have elicited a lot of uh, differing opinions uh, still to this day, people will kind of squabble over whether this psalm is that genre or this genre and how that psalm may or may not have been used because really we can't uh, unearth that context anymore. Uh, we don't know. We have, we have guesses and we have ideas, but that was the field. And when Brueggemann showed up to write this essay 40 years ago, he suggested a more pastoral categorization of the Psalms. Namely, he had three groups that he wanted to identify. The Psalms of orientation, the Psalms of disorientation, and then the Psalms of reorientation. And these three categories, Brueggemann suggested, would help us to understand the use of the Psalms in our context because as a whole, it was uh, emblematic of the life of faith and this movement from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Now, we can look at each of these different categories, uh, which we will, and attempt to explain them a bit further so we just have a, a bit more to hold on to. Of the Psalms of orientation, Brueggemann says that they are not the most interesting for there is in them no great movement, no tension to resolve. Indeed, what mainly characterizes them is the absence of tension. Now, this is where it is, gets strange when you think about it because these are the psalms that we like to sing the most. For Brueggemann, these are the least interesting almost because they're just making statements. And while these statements are true, there is no tension in the Psalms. Nothing is happening. These are just uh, almost statements of fact that Israel and that we as well believe to be true. These Psalms create a sense of orderliness in the world. They present the world as, as ordered and predictable. They, they speak of the goodness of God. They speak about God's reliability and the reliability of life in general, talking about the patterns of, of seasons and the things that we know to be true. Uh, for example, in Psalm 145, it says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. 
and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The might of your awesome deeds shall be proclaimed and I will declare your greatness. They shall celebrate the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his compassion is over all that he has made. Now, Brueggemann would take a psalm like this that is basically just giving us facts of Israel's theological beliefs about who God is and what God does and what the world is like. It's ordered, it's good, it's reliable. Brueggemann refers to these sorts of psalms as the psalms of orientation because within it exposes Israel's core theological testimony, the things that at the very uh, deepermost parts of their being that they believed were true and that they relied upon. These were the core testimonies of their faith that gave their life meaning and coherence. But then life happens, you know? Then the stuff that, that is laid out in the core testimony, in the Psalms of orientation, the goodness and the reliability, then something takes place to shift that and begins to elicit questions from, from the participants or from the readers or perhaps from the people in the pews as the songs are being led from the stage and the refrain is, you are good, you are good, oh, you are good. And you are sitting there trying to contemplate how and when and where and you're dealing with your own emotional struggle, attempting to make sense of that because your life might not bring those facts to bear. It, it might not provide an example of the core testimony that everyone around you and the community at large is believing. Life happens, people die, relationships are split apart, COVID-19, takes over and we are quarantined in our homes so that you cannot now do X, Y, and Z. And you begin, maybe not necessarily to doubt the core testimony, but to say, okay, well, if that's the thing, what's this? What's going on here? And how do we bring those two things together? Maybe you've felt that. Maybe you feel it right now. You're not alone. There's a whole witness of people throughout the Bible that have been in these places where instead of plastering on the you are good face, they are allowing themselves to say, this is the thing, but also this is happening and it's real and it hurts and there's pain involved and there's bitterness that's involved. Brueggemann refers to these psalms that push back against the psalms of orientation as the psalms of disorientation. They're mainly the lament psalms, and they take up a good bit of the book of psalms as a whole. Uh, it doesn't take too long just reading through. You can read Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and then boom, you're at a, uh, a psalm of lament, and it kind of continues on. 
these psalms of lament, they're ways of entering, according to Brueggemann, entering linguistically or literarily or poetically or even prayerfully, entering into a new distressful situation in which the old orientation, the core testimony over here, the things that we keep saying about orderliness and reliability and goodness, in which the old orientation, it's collapsed. It is no longer evident in the life of the the singer of this psalm, the one who is raising their lament or their petition. Psalm 6, for example, it says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. These lament psalms, it's difficult uh, to isolate the, the... the problem that the psalmist is attempting to to raise. This is why the book of Psalms is so good because it's, its ambiguity invites our participation and our reuse of these psalms. The psalmist says, my soul also is struck with terror while you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13 picks up some of the same phraseology. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 88, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. There's actually a displacement that's moving in in the Psalms, oftentimes in the Psalms of Lament, where the Psalmist is moving from where we are to to the underworld, to the place of the dead where God can no longer be reached. My life is drawing near to Sheol, the psalmist says. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help because in the pit and in Sheol, there is no help. I'm like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with your waves. Now in these lament Psalms, in fact, in all of them except for Psalm 88, there's a movement from petition and prayer and lament to trust there is this honest admission of the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions, the the doubt and the worry and the anxiety. And then in every Psalm, but this one right here, the Psalmist moves to, yet I will trust you. It's almost like they move to, in some ways, they move back to the Psalms of orientation. Yet I'll continue to believe that the Psalms of orientation, they keep working. They're still here. You are still good. The world is sort of still ordered or it will be ordered again because it's not now, but it'll move that way because it has to, because these are the core things that we believe. But in Psalm 88, it doesn't ever move to trust. In fact, it concludes with these words. Your wrath, it's swept over me. Your dread assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides, they close in on me. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. And the last line in Hebrew, it's just two words. My companions or my friends, darkness. 
Some translations uh, render this, darkness is my closest friend or my companion. And then the period hits, the curtain drops, the credits go up, it's over. There is no turn to trust in this song. But in the church, in the church, we know lament, we know that it happens, and we'll break it out on occasion, but we don't typically practice lament, which means for a situation like this, we're not prepared for what's going on. The only language that we have that we know that is comfortable is quickly moving beyond the lament, beyond the disorientation, and ending up back to praise and back to hope and not allowing ourselves to feel what we feel. In the church, we rush past the lament because we're too hurried to get to raising a hallelujah. We're too hurried to announce how good God is and all the hope that we have. And it, and it forces us, I think, to promulgate a bad theology about who God actually is, what God is, is about in the world. And it forces us to make claims about what God is doing that may or may not actually be true in the world as we know it. About the Psalms of Disorientation, Brueggemann says, the point to be urged here is this. The use of these psalms of darkness may be judged by the world to be acts of unfaith and failure. But for the trusting community, their use is an act of bold faith, albeit a transformed faith. It's an act of bold faith on the one hand because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretended way. Sit with that for a second. These Psalms, which for some people they might say, oh, that's, that's unfaith and that's failure and we should be moving beyond that to something else, to, to hope. What Brueggemann is saying, actually, wait, before you go there, this is, a, this is a move of bold faith for us to have these emotions and to announce them with, with clarity because it's allowing us to see that the world, as we experience it, is how it is and we can't pretend that it's anything else. On the other hand, he says, it's bold because it insists that all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for discourse with God. Catch this, there is nothing out of bounds. There is nothing that is precluded. There is nothing that is inappropriate for us to speak to God. So I don't know where you are and what you've heard and what you've been exposed to and what you have felt uh, ashamed for feeling, but perhaps let's try on some of these. You've worked real hard for four years and college has been an awesome time for you. Your diploma and the relationships that it uh, embodies and represents that, that have defined you and that have shaped you, the experiences that that piece of paper that it includes and that it encapsulates, the transformation that these four years or five years or however long it's taken you, the, the transformation that it's brought about in you, it deserves to be celebrated. 
And you can't, at least now you can't, in the traditional way of the cap and gown and the stage, at least in the timing and the structure that you thought it was going to happen, you can't observe that celebration. Lament. So you're, you're essential personnel which means that you're still working. And that's a good thing because that means that you're still getting paid and, and that's helpful and, and that's more than other people have. And you've rationalized that in your mind and you've said to yourself, this is, this is good for me and for my family. I, I don't feel safe leaving my house, but I'm, I'm gonna do it. And as you look online and you see on, on social media or Instagram or Facebook or what have you, you see people at home that aren't deemed essential or can, or can you know, work from home in a different way in front of their computer, on the phone, what have you. And you see that happening and you see them either complaining about being with their kids or you see them doing cool crafts or whatever, or just snuggling with them. And you begin to feel bitter and you begin to feel angry and resentful. You feel like you're missing out in that time and your kids are doing something else with someone else. Lament. Your grandmother dies and you can't leave your home to bury her. You can't leave your home to celebrate her life, to eulogize her, perhaps. You can't leave to be with your family. Lament. Your elderly dad is sick and you're scared that in the midst of this quarantine that he might pass away without one last hug, without one last conversation, without one last whispered word into his ear. Lament. The Psalms, they provide these examples of sadness for many different reasons. It's not off limits for us to feel that. So don't let anyone rush you to raise a hallelujah. Don't let anyone rush you to believe cliches. Your honesty and your lament is an act of bold faith in this moment right now that is consistent with where you are. And that doesn't mean that you don't hope. And that doesn't mean that you've given up. It means that you are being honest and authentic with where you are right now. And God honors that. Now there is a third category for Brueggemann. There are the Psalms of orientation, this core testimony. There are these moments that bring about Psalms of disorientation that sort of call this, this other thing into question because that's not how the world seems to be working out. And then there's a third category, the Psalms of reorientation. Brueggemann says that these reflect a quite new circumstance that speaks of newness. It's not going back to the old. The old can never be recaptured. Everything has changed now in light of the disorientation. And granted, those are different degrees for different experiences. But what we have learned in that moment about ourselves, about God, about the world, it shapes now how we view the core testimony. These Psalms of reorientation, they bring us into this newness. It's not the old revisited. They also bring about a sense of surprise because there was no ground in the disorientation to anticipate the newness. 
There was no grounds to anticipate in the disorientation what this will now look like, what this reorientation becomes for us. And these Psalms of reorientation, they also provide us with a sense of gift because it's nothing that we, the singers of these lament Psalms, have done to achieve reorientation. These are, are, are most clearly exemplified in the Thanksgiving Psalms, which some scholars would say is the lament psalm concluded because it tells the, the, the singer of the psalm's story from lament to praise. I was in the pit, I was, I was nearing Sheol, I was, I was going towards death, but then God, you did something and now I will praise you. Psalm 30 is perhaps the most classic example of this. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up and you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You've restored me to life from among those going down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. These psalms and these experiences, they do exist. There is movement from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. It does happen. I'm not so sure that we are there yet. I'm not so sure that our time of lament and petition has ceased and I'm not so sure that, at least for all of us, that it's appropriate to move towards celebration without allowing ourselves the right and the license to grieve and to express our very deep-seated feelings regarding what's going on in the world. I don't think that any feeling or any emotion or any sadness or disappointed or even fear is off limits right now. There's one place that I think we can anchor this to in the New Testament. And it's appropriate for the time because as we move towards Good Friday, which is just next week if you can believe that, may we remember then the words of Jesus, at least as recorded in Matthew and Mark. The last thing that he's recorded as saying is a psalm of lament from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus never moves towards trust while he's on the cross. There is nothing spoken beyond those words from Psalm 22, at least as we have in the story of Matthew and Mark, they just sort of leave it there. In fact, it goes on to say that he has a loud cry and then he dies on the cross. But we see our Savior lamenting. We see our Savior petitioning, if you will. We see our Savior wrestling with emotions that are difficult for us to encapsulate in full. But I think that at least in these stories, 
that the inclusion of this text, which yes, it is prophetic. Yes, it is messianic. Yes, Jesus is saying a lot with the use of it. I also think that there might be something for us to consider that what he is saying is it's okay to feel, it's okay to pray strong words. It's okay when you feel forsaken to announce that to the God of heaven, knowing that God understands that God has been there, that God is with you. So as we think about lament, and as we think about not moving too quickly beyond it, and again, I said at the very beginning that this is for a certain segment of people because for others of you, it has not hit. You're fine, it's okay. But for some people that are really wrestling with this moment, I want you to hear these words. Don't give up hope. Whatever it takes, I, I, I encourage you to be gracious to yourself, to allow yourself to do whatever it is that you need to do in this moment. I would also encourage you not to bend your theology to the demands of bad praise music, which does not honor where you are in this moment. God accepts your lament. God knows your pain. And God grieves with those who grieve. Your complaints and your struggles, they are not petty in God's eyes. God understands. God knows. God grieves with you. I do believe a day is coming when we will move from disorientation to reorientation. I don't know when that day is. In the meantime, we can place our faith and our trust in Jesus, but that allows us to be where we are, to be seen as full and whole in, in that, in our anger and hurt and sadness, and to know that this is not a test for us, but God is grieving what it is that we feel and is hoping with us that we will move to reorientation.